0: So welcome everybody to the Torch of Progress. This is the speaker series for our online learning program, Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Progress Studies for Young Scholars is uh, an online learning program in the history of technology, uh, aimed right now at high school students uh, and up. The uh, the current version of the program is uh, is aimed at teenagers, but. We've had enough popular, uh, by, by popular demand, we've had enough interest in an adult version of the course, which we are planning to announce soon and launch in uh, the fall. Um, we have been running Progress Studies for Young Scholars as a uh, summer program, um, but we are just now getting to the end of the summer. So we are going to continue it in the fall as a, uh, as a homeschooling and or an afterschool uh, program. So um, folks who are interested in that, check out progressstudies.school. Uh, where you can learn more about the program and sign up, and we will uh, we are going to be running it on an ongoing basis. Uh, before we dive into today's event, let me just tell you a little bit about a couple of the things we have coming up. So this speaker series is an ongoing uh, speaker series. Uh, this is gonna be the last one for a couple of weeks. We're taking a little bit of a break in August, uh, but we will be back on August 19th uh, with Laura Mazur, who is a surgeon and a professor of surgery. Uh, to talk to us about the history and the practice of surgery and, and surgical education should be very interesting. And then uh, the week after that, we will have Jerry uh, Neumann, who is an investor and uh, an angel investor and also a, um, a lecturer at Columbia University about um, technology management and, uh, and investment um, He has a very interesting blog called Reaction Wheel, and he's on Twitter at G.A. Neumann and um, has a lot of interesting things to say about investment technology and progress. So that should be a fun conversation. That will be on Wednesday, August 26th. Both of those events are at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific. Okay, Um, I am your host, Jason Crawford. I am the author of The Roots of Progress, which you can find at rootsofprogress.org, where I write about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. I'm also the creator of the course, Progress Studies for Young Scholars. And with us today is uh, Danica Ramey. Um, Danica is the uh, president of uh, the B612 Foundation, um, uh, which is dedicated to protecting Earth from asteroid impacts. Um, we, I met Danica originally through the Long Now Foundation, where she is also a board member. So she's had a long and interesting career and is involved in many more things than that. But rather than bore you with her whole long list of accomplishments and affiliations, I think we'll just dive in and I'm going to let her uh, take it away. Please uh, wel- welcome Danica. Thanks for being here with us today.
1: Thanks, Jason. Thanks for the introduction. I'm really excited to be here today. I love talking about asteroids. So I'm gonna do a quick little 18 minute presentation and then I'm all about answering questions afterwards. And hopefully I'll be able to navigate sharing my screen with all of you without too much trouble. Okay, there we go. All right, so thank you for the introduction and I'm really delighted to be here today to talk about asteroids. I'm gonna try and breeze through the presentation and get to the Q&A, because like I said, I love answering questions about how we can protect our planet. So Jason shared that um, I'm gonna be covering some progress. Um, This talk is both about progress, but also how far we have to go to make meaningful progress because asteroids present both an opportunity and a challenge for humanity asteroids are interesting celestial objects that can tell us about the origins of our life and nearby objects to visit and demonstrate new technology and stepping stones along the way as we move out towards other planets and occasionally they hit our home planet so let's have a look
2: the nuclear test ban treaty organization monitors the earth around the clock listening for the infrasound signature of nuclear detonations Between 2000 and 2013, this network detected dozens of massive explosions in our atmosphere. But not a single one of them was caused by a nuclear weapon. The actual cause, asteroid impacts. Between 2000 and 2013, there were 26 recorded asteroid impacts on Earth, ranging in energy from one to 600 kilotons. For comparison, the nuclear bomb that destroyed Hiroshima in 1945 exploded with an energy of 15 kilotons. While most of the asteroids shown here exploded at too high an altitude to cause damage on the ground, they do remind us that asteroid impacts are not rare. An asteroid large enough to destroy an entire city hits the Earth on average once a century. Because we don't know when or where the next major impact will be, our current strategy for dealing with asteroid impacts is blind luck. But we can change that. The next great space mission is protecting the planet. Join us.
1: Wow, right? That's a lot of bullseyes on our home planet. So let's put a recent asteroid impact into perspective. In 1908, an asteroid exploded in the air in Siberia, Russia, near Tunguska, And it's the largest recorded asteroid impact in recent history. That asteroid devastated an area about the size of a metropolitan city, about 800 square miles. This is a photo of the trees blown down by that asteroid when it exploded in the air. The shockwave and the heat from that explosion was felt all across Europe. Had that asteroid had just a few moments earlier over say London or Berlin, it would have been a defining moment in history. With that, let me give you some background. As Jason mentioned, B612 Foundation, the organization I run is dedicated to protecting the planet from asteroid impacts. And we do this through Primarily science and technology, and a bit of education and advocacy. At this point, after that impact video, you might be asking how many near Earth asteroids are there? Well, it's rather complicated to answer, I have learned. The Minor Planet Center, funded by NASA, keeps track of near Earth asteroids and has a database of 20,000 near Earth asteroids today. We're not concerned about the asteroids that are out there in the um, main belt, the main asteroid belt, because they stay away from Earth. So let's take a look at the data by starting in the far right top bubble. The good news is that NASA has found 93% of the civilization ending ones, and none of them are on the way to impact Earth. We won't go the way of the dinosaurs. This size of an asteroid, the kind that would wipe out all of civilization, was largely inventoried back in 2010. Now let's look at the circle with the 44 to 140 number. Today, we've tracked 1% of the 1908 Tunguska size asteroids. That's the one I mentioned that wiped out all the trees in the prior photo. An asteroid of this size, if it hit in the wrong place, could devastate a population and destabilize the global economy and much more. Today's telescopes find about 2000 new near earth asteroids per year in all size ranges. And the current discovery rate of 2000 per year, how long will it take to find a half a million or 3 million near earth asteroids? It's a very long time. Discovery is humanity's grand challenge with this existential threat. So the really good news is that there's a new telescope coming online and it'll be very good at finding asteroids, formerly called LSST, but recently renamed the Vera Rubin Telescope. It's situated high in the mountains of Chile and will see first light in a couple of years. This telescope was first funded by individuals and then the bulk of it was later funded by the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy. Its primary objectives are to understand dark energy and dark matter and survey the Milky Way. But it will also be good at finding asteroids. Vera Rubin Telescope will complement the current land-based telescopes like Catalina Sky Survey in Tucson and PanStar in Hawaii, which currently find the majority of the new 2,000 per year near-Earth asteroids. Remember, we have an inventory of 20,000 today. In just a few years, Vera Rubin will deliver an anticipated 100,000 new near-Earth asteroids, dwarfing the current inventory. I like to think that we're entering the decade of asteroid discovery. So once an asteroid has been found, we need to understand its orbit. We need to simulate all the force factors out in space to find out where an asteroid is going to be in the future. We need to know if that asteroid has our home planet's address on it. That task is called orbit propagation. At the B612 Asteroid Institute, we're building a platform that creates these orbit propagations and more. Our Asteroid Decision Analysis and Mapping Project, or ADAM for short, is building analytical tools to help world leaders, scientists, citizens, interpret, understand, and manage this fire hose of new asteroid data that'll be coming in the next decade. The long-term goal of Atom actually is to build and serve up a dynamic map of all of the objects in our solar system. To build Atom, it requires partners. So Google gives us the computational power to compute, AGI gives us mission planning and astrodynamics tools, and Vera Rubin telescope will provide data along with the smaller telescopes coming online. So let's look at what Adam can do today. Our platform can easily and conveniently propagate and visualize the range of trajectory possibilities for an asteroid. Such calculations called Monte Carlo simulations involve running forward many thousands of slightly different trajectories that are each nevertheless consistent with our observations. These calculations would not be possible without the new computational capabilities of computers. We simply could not have done this 10 years ago. By looking to see how these slight varying cases diverge, we can calculate critical parameters such as the probability that a certain asteroid may impact Earth. Now, this is a single simulated asteroid, not real, and each of the red dots are possible impact sites on Earth. We'll need more observations over time to understand more precisely if it will actually hit or miss Earth. That's why we need both ground and space-based telescopes to do what are called follow-up observations as well as the initial discovery. So once we know where they are, how would we deflect them? One of my colleagues, three-time astronaut, Dr. Ed Liu, along with another astronaut, Stan Love, invented the gravity tractor back in 2005. The gravity tractor uses the gravitational interaction between a small spacecraft and the asteroid to tug it into another orbit. Another deflection technique is called a kinetic impactor. Essentially you kick or knock the asteroid into another orbit by smashing a small spacecraft into it. The good news is that NASA and ESA have two missions funded called DART and HERA. DART, short for Double Asteroid Redirect Test, will crash into an asteroid. And then the HERA mission, funded by the European Space Agency, will arrive and take photos and measurements afterwards. One of the things that the Asteroid Institute is looking at is the amount of energy it takes to move an asteroid. The energy it takes to move an asteroid depends on how early we find it, which equals how much warning time we have. So the more time you have, the smaller kick you need, and the less Bruce Willis. So global progress is being made on these deflection demonstration missions. Essentially, the scientists agree that if we have enough warning time, we have really good solutions, if we have time. Earlier, I shared that the Minor Planet Center keeps track of the near-Earth asteroids, and that database has 20,000 near-Earth asteroids today. This next video I'm gonna show was produced five years ago, so the numbers referenced are definitely dated because we are making progress with our current ground-based tools. My colleague, former astronaut Dr. Ed Liu, who leads our asteroid institute, took this photo from one of his three stays on the International Space Station. This is the San Francisco Bay Area. Not sure if you can see it very well in the Zoom UI. Can you pick out Golden Gate Park or the Golden Gate Bridge? We always like to joke he had a very, very nice view from his former office window. So here is astronaut Dr. Ed Liu explaining our place in the solar system.
3: This is our solar system. We live on the third planet. That's the light blue line you see near the middle of the screen. Orbiting the sun besides us are millions of asteroids. In the outer part of the screen, you can see the asteroid belt. That's between Mars and Jupiter. In our neighborhood, in the inner part of the solar system, there's a lot of other asteroids that are whizzing past us. Showing here the 10,000 known near-Earth asteroids. These are the asteroids that cross near-Earth and occasionally hit the Earth. It's 10,000 of them that we've discovered thus far. Seems like a lot. Looks like a busy place. Until you realize that we've only discovered about 1% of what's out there. We've only surveyed about 1% of the sky. There's about 100 times more than this actually out there. The real solar system looks something more like this. A million asteroids orbiting near our orbit. We're driving around with our eyes closed. Our job is to find these asteroids before they find us. Because if you don't know where they are, there's nothing you can do about it. If you know where it is, we know we can deflect an asteroid. That's what we're trying to do.
1: Generally, folks say, wow, when they see this video. I'm not sure how it looked on your end through Zoom. It might have been a bit of pea soup. But um, on a big screen, it looks pretty amazing. Um, I hope you've now learned that the core challenge is we need to find and track asteroids. We need to accelerate the rate of asteroid discovery. Five years ago, after a small asteroid hit in Chelyabinsk, Russia that sent 1,500 people to the hospital and blew out over 100,000 windows, we realized we needed the general public to be educated about asteroids. So we launched Asteroid Day to enable and encourage the world to learn about asteroids, like we're doing here today, to pressure governments and industry to accelerate investment and discovery, and to get involved. Dr. Brian May, lead guitarist from Queen, You know him as a rock star, I suspect, an Apollo 9 astronaut, Rusty Schweigert, plus a filmmaker named Greg Richters and myself co-founded Asteroid Day. Asteroid Day is now a United Nations Day of Education and Awareness. It's celebrated on the day of the Tanguska impact in 1908. That's June 30th. We just had Asteroid Day. We modeled Asteroid Day after Earth Day and have been organizing it for the last six years. Here's what we've done so far.
4: Who better to rock our world than Dr. Brian May, astrophysicist and legendary guitarist of Queen, who co-founded Asteroid Day. Asteroid Day Live is the only programming dedicated to introducing you to many of the most prominent asteroid experts in the world. We learn by listening to them share their personal experiences and knowledge of how our solar system was formed, how it is evolving, and how we can protect our beautiful blue planet. This programming wouldn't be possible without the generous support of major sponsors, including the government of Luxembourg and you. You play a critical role in our ability to shine a bright spotlight on the leading work of astronomers, engineers, scientists, space mission operators and astronauts, our global rock stars. Bring the topic of asteroids closer to people of all ages and remind our government leaders of the importance of funding planetary science. Asteroids play an important role in our lives from the formation of our solar system to their extraordinary value for future resource utilization to enabling ongoing exploration of our solar system. And finally, when they impact our home planet. Asteroid Day is more than just a broadcast program. It's thousands of independently organized events in 192 countries. These events are the heart and soul of Asteroid Day, as they connect and engage students on the subject of asteroids. For many students across the world, Asteroid Day is their only opportunity to listen to, learn from, and to meet astronomers, astrophysicists, and astronauts, heroes of the STEM generation. Your support enables the growth of our network of independent event organizers, so more events can take place. It allows us to not only encourage the future generation of scientists, but to grow our online library of educational tools, enabling more people to dig deeper into asteroids and to connect to scientists, observers, and astronauts. Your support enables us to meet the goals of the United Nations Office for the peaceful uses of outer space affairs by generating awareness of what we can do to protect our planet.
1: So, Asteroid Day has helped excite and engage the public about asteroids. From the United Nations to educators and scientists around the world, Asteroid Day is really a worldwide movement, and each year I am thrilled at the level of engagement around the topic of how to protect our planet. In closing, this global existential risk is solvable in our lifetime. The world needs to understand both the risk and the opportunities asteroids presents. Our B612 Asteroid Institute is working on some of the solutions today. Global space agencies are funding deflection, asteroid deflection and demonstration and research missions. And scientists are learning more about asteroids with each new scientific mission. And there are several really exciting ones. This is, there is scientific agreement on how we can protect our planet. But to protect our home planet, we need to know where the asteroids are and whether they are heading to our address in the solar system. I look forward to answering your questions. Don't make them too technical. Jason, over to you.
0: All right, thank you so much, uh, Danica. That was a great intro and uh, nice and concise, so we have plenty of time for questions. So, uh, all right, everybody, students um, in the course, Go ahead and uh, put your questions in the class Slack, where I've started a thread. And as always, we'll give priority uh, to you. And then we've also got uh, everybody else. Go ahead and um, add questions into the chat. I see we're getting a few already. Um, great. So um, let's see. OK, so first question from student uh, Juan David mentions uh, that the, the students in the class uh, did see at least part of a talk, uh, Ed Lu's talk, at the interval where he talked about the map that you're building of, uh, you know, Google Maps of the, of the solar system, <laughs> right? Um, uh, so Juan David just wanted to know, uh, are, there, are there any updates on the progress of the map? Kind of what's, what's coming along with it? What's the state of it?
1: Well, so the state of it is that I, I shared the visualization with all of you here. That visualization capability is um, part of the new um, capabilities that we've just recently um, implemented into Atom. Um, we are currently are working with synthetic asteroids, so not a real database of the asteroid population. And that, that, that set of synthetic asteroids were picked specifically because hidden in, it, in that synthetic set of asteroids are ones that will impact Earth. Um, and we, of the asteroids that we have in our database right now, given the computational capabilities that, that um, NASA and other folks currently use, none of those are going to hit Earth. So using the current database isn't all that useful for us. So we use synthetic asteroids um, to do that kind of modeling work. Um, <clears throat> so as more instruments come online, LSST, hopefully there's a, a space mission in NASA called um, uh, the uh, 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 NEO, uh, NEO space mission. And hopefully that will be funded. It's an infrared space-based telescope that would be um, at, L, at the L1 position sort of hanging up there um, um, in space, not in low earth orbit. Um, the more data that we have, um, the, 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 the more we'll be able to actually do predictive um, uh, analytics. But today we work with synthetic asteroids. So we're, the progress that we're trying to make right now are building both the research platforms, what are the right questions that we should ask and how will the data answer those questions for us from the synthetic population? Um, and, and make sure that those tools are extendable out to other people, i.e. they're not so complicated that you have to be an engineer to run them. So, um, that's the progress that we're making.
0: Cool. Awesome. Um, I'm super excited about that, that, uh, about that project. Um, looking forward to having a map of the solar system. Um,
1: data in it.
0: Yes. With real data. Work
1: If you don't have data.
0: Yes, yes indeed. So that's um,
1: why that's why that's why it's like I always like to say the most important thing we can do is encourage governments and institutions to fund asteroid discovery. The map will not be possible without the data in the map. And yep. so that's the that's the challenge in front of us is to make sure that those um those those programs, those instruments are funded.
0: Yeah. Um, you mentioned there's this new telescope uh, coming online soon. Was called the LSST, I guess has been renamed the Vera Rubin. The first um,
1: major observatory named after a woman. <laughs> uh,
0: as um, uh, so, uh, as I understand it, actually finding asteroids is part of the mission of the Vera Rubin telescope. Um, do you know what's different about it that's going to make it better at this job than maybe than than previous telescopes?
1: The, the field of view, so how wide, so when you look at different telescopes, some like look through a soda straw really far out into the solar system and they just see about that much out into our universe and beyond our solar system. Vera Rubin is going to have a very wide field of view and will scan the entire sky every three days. So it'll have the wow. biggest set of images, I think it's five petabytes Is that right? Um, I'm not great with um, remember the exact numbers, but it'll be the largest data set um, of our uh, universe and solar system will be um, uh, imaged by LSST and then put into computers all around the world for different types of analytics. And so for us, um, we're right now, engineering our platform, Atom to help build the map, um, but also to protect our planet, to be ready to receive that data. Of just the, we only care about the asteroid data.
0: Yeah. Um, You also mentioned space-based telescopes. What are the pros and cons of ground-based versus space-based telescopes for finding asteroids?
1: So ground-based telescopes only can operate half of the time because when the sun's out, the telescope um, can't um, see. So it needs a dark of the night. Um, And that we don't have, uh, we've got pretty good coverage on the northern hemisphere, but not great coverage on the southern hemisphere. Um, and so what LSST is going to do is provide us a lot of coverage on, on the the, the uh, southern um, hemisphere, as well as some other telescopes that the um, uh, ESA is is um, funding the extremely uh, large telescope. And, and there's another one, um, FlyEye, that's actually going to be 100% dedicated to identifying asteroids, um, short-term warning asteroids. Um, so... Uh, the downside is that our, our land-based telescopes can only operate at night, and they have a lot of things that uh, interfere with what they actually see because of our atmosphere and you know the satellites that are um, running around and cloud cover makes it so that we can't actually um, look out into the solar system as well. So weather is one of the one of the other challenges. But if we move out into space, we don't have weather. We don't have to worry about the sun because you can have the telescope always fit, having its back faced to the sun. So it can be doing imaging out into space consistently.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Uh Um, Uh-huh. My understanding is the Vera Rubin is the first major telescope that's going to have, like as part of its mission, finding asteroids. And then you just mentioned there's another one, uh, I guess that will be, that will be coming online that will also have that as part of its mission.
1: Neo-SIM, yeah.
0: yeah. So, uh, is there that indicates to me maybe that people, not just B six twelve Foundation, but more broadly the space community, is starting to take this goal more seriously? Is that would you say that interest is kind of generally ramping up?
1: Yeah. And and I, you know, one of the things that we um, didn't talk about, or I didn't talk about in my presentation, is that there's a there's a group called the Association of Space Explorers, and that's the club of the people five hundred and 45 or something like that, who've been to space. And the ASE uh, started a process with the United Nations um, almost um, 15 years ago. Because who better to understand that asteroids are a problem than astronauts, because they're the ones who've been closest to space. And so they realized that, in fact, this was and is uh, a problem for humanity. And so they knew the best. Body to go to about this problem was the United Nations. And so, through the, what's called the Committee for Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, or COPUS, um, they started a, um, a program to look at what were the geopolitical ramifications of when we know an asteroid's coming, how are we collectively as humanity going to um, uh, do the trade off analysis and deflection planning and knowledge sharing? And so Out of that work through the United Nations, um, there were two bodies that were created. One is called the International Asteroid Warning Network, um, and that's a group of scientists that will help interpret, you know, data as more data is made available. And then the other one's called the Space Mission Planning Group, or same page, Space Mission Planning Advisory Group. Um, And that is a a group represented by the um, four spacefaring nations. um, And then um, a couple of other representatives from several different countries that would um, uh, put together basically the strategy, if we have enough time, to put together a strategy um, on how we would deflect uh, an an asteroid. So that early work um, by uh, the ASE plus the work by Congress here in the United States to say we ought to find those asteroids because we have the capability to find them. I think the two of those um, things together at the global level, the UN taking very seriously this issue of of asteroids and here in the US, which is the largest funder of all of the asteroid discovery telescopes, um, just to be very clear, the two that find the most asteroids today Panstar and Catalina Sky Survey are one hundred percent funded by NASA. So the reason we know why there's twenty thousand that we've been able to find thus far, the best current asteroid hunters are funded by the uh, by NASA. So uh, I think that answers your question.
0: Yeah, what's the timeline on this? Like in, in term those like those roughly those activities you just mentioned. Kind of when was all that getting going?
1: So that was started basically, uh, uh, I wanna say 12 years ago and it was ratified maybe nine years ago um, uh, or three years ago. So nine years into its its life. Um, and I was actually because of the ASC's work that when we created Asteroid Day, uh, we announced we were creating it in, in 2014, um, by 2016, because the work had already been done at the United Nations level, we, we were able to take what we had independently proposed, which is Asteroid Day on June 30th, um, we were able to take it to the United Nations General Assembly and they uh, approved it because all that work had already been done. So the progress that had been achieved through the ASE and then you know, separately through the United States Congress was setting in place a mandate the combination of those two um, have really kind of um, moved the, the needle on the conversation um, about asteroids. And of course, you know, the, the, the needle moved even further when the asteroid hit in Chelyabinsk and we got, you know, very clear um, indications that asteroids in fact are very real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a little surprising to me sometimes that all of this is just coming together now and that people haven't been thinking about this for longer and and gotten worried about it earlier.
1: Well, you have to remember that our understanding about um, asteroid impacts and that an asteroid took out the dinosaurs um, uh, is is pretty new um, in terms of a knowledge and lifetime. I mean, I'm going to give away my age by saying that when I went to school, they taught us that the dinosaurs died because they had little brains. That was what we were taught. And so it wasn't until this scientist named um, uh, Eugene Shoemaker, who was um, working in white sands, um, trying to understand what happens um, with uh, atomic bombs. And when they detonate them, what, is, what does it happen at the, at the, at the, at the geology level, um, that he realized that there's a place uh, in, in Arizona called Meteor Crater where he had been teaching the Apollo astronauts how to um, understand geology. So they would go in their spacesuits to Meteor Crater and, you know, in the heat and they would take their their things and all their gloves and they would pick through the the rubble in this place called Meteor Crater. Um, And he realized that Meteor Crater had the geology that looked just like what happened when you detonated an atomic bomb. So um, everyone thought it was a volcano but he realized that when you detonate a bomb, it takes the rocks and turns them up like this. And a volcano doesn't do that or a volcanic vent doesn't do it. It spews it. And so there's a very specific pattern that the scientists learned about um, uh, in the 70s in the or in the 60s that Eugene Shoemaker um, uh, realized. The other thing that happened from a scientific perspective is that there was a, uh, oil companies were drilling, uh, they were taking um, images of um, uh, the Gulf of Mexico for oil. And so they were basically trying to figure out, you know, where might they do um, deep water drilling? And they, they noticed a pattern in their images that you know, brought to us by technology, where they saw a rim that went around um, uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And it was that information plus our understanding um, on, on how geology works um, when something big hits it, led us to understand that in fact, that was where the asteroid hit that wiped out the dinosaurs. All this wow. is really new. This is new. This isn't something that I grow up knew, knowing and certainly not what they taught in school. And we know that schools often lag several decades um, with you know current science. <laughs> which is a whole other story, but I'm really glad you're doing this, Jason. I'm really glad you're doing this.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, yeah, I don't think I realized that it was quite that new. Um, it's
1: that new and what's really exciting. So that's why I always like to say this is the, this is like the decade of asteroid discovery. It's going to be really amazing. So asteroids can tell us about the origins of our life. Right, because asteroids, many scientists uh, believe and agree that asteroids brought us the water that is sitting in front of you right now. Uh, We didn't know that. Um, uh, Asteroids have got amazing resources in them that may be useful, starting with water, in fact, um, should we wanna move out into the solar system. Um, And asteroids, well, they occasionally hit Earth and we ought to stop making that happen if we can, if we care enough to stop making that happen. And when you take a long view, right? So, so of course the asteroid problem could be tomorrow because we don't really know where they are or you know, a big one could hit as we say in the video in a hundred years, you just don't know. I mean, it really is a game of, of roulette, um, but we should get to it and we have been getting to it and we couldn't have gotten as far as we've gotten today without technology being our friend, everything from imaging to geological science to our understanding of the solar system. So all the great computational tools that we've been developing, whether it's um, through the lens of a telescope or through the computational capabilities of a computer or um, uh, radar imaging, all of those things are contributing to our ability to actually make
0: progress. Cool. Um, Another one of our students, uh, Julia, asks, are we prepared enough to deflect an asteroid and uh, there's a related question uh, from Phil in the chat here, um, which uh, to, to the extent that, that you know the background, can you, can you discuss the physics and technology behind asteroid deflection? So you mentioned a couple of things in the talk, but maybe you can elaborate.
1: Yes, so, um, so we are making progress, which is what I said in, in, in the talk. Uh, the national, uh, NASA has funded something called the Double Asteroid Redirect Test Mission. I um, mean, it's going to launch next year, uh, no, 2024, 20, 2023, um, and it's going to go to what's called a binary asteroid, so there's an asteroid, and then it's got a little moon that runs around it like this, and it has no chance of hitting Earth. And they're going to take a spacecraft, and they're going to go out and visit it um, using that, um, uh, orbit analysis or orbit propagation that the figure out how do you leave earth and how do you do the math and physics to get you at the right time to the place where um, you know you can meet um, uh, this asteroid and they're going to run a, a very small spacecraft into the moon and they're going to hit it and then they're going to have the land-based telescopes pointing up at it and then they're going to measure the amount of change in its orbit which is a which is a stable orbit around this other larger asteroid. Then HERA, funded by the European Space Agency, will take pictures of how big was the blast site. So like we were talking about with the Meteor Crater, um, we know what we, we know what the, the, the moon, Diddy Moon, um, what Diddy Moon looks like before, they're gonna take the after pictures and um, those pictures are gonna help them understand the geology of that um, asteroid. Um, so those are, you know, two missions that are funded. Super exciting, um, uh, and 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 that is using a technique called the kinetic impactor. The gravity tractor um, has not been um, uh, a gravity tractor demonstration mission has not been funded, but the scientists um, looked at the underlying physics that go along with the idea that, you know, an asteroid has got its own gravity, a spacecraft has got its own gravity. There's nothing really holding you down out in space. So you don't need a lot of gravity, gravitational pull between the two to basically just tug the asteroid into another orbit. And remember, you only have to adjust it by a very small amount for it to miss Earth because Earth is moving and the asteroid's moving. and you really only need to move at a very, very you know, slow it down or speed it up just a little bit and it's gonna miss. But it requires us knowing in advance that that asteroid has our address on it. And then the third op- option, which nobody wants to really discuss, but it is a very viable option, um, is to use a, a nuclear weapon. Um, and we wouldn't do what Bruce Willis did, drill a hole and drop a, a nuclear weapon down and then blow up the asteroid because then you'd have hundreds of thousands of little asteroid bits on the same orbit coming towards you. Um, <laughs> you, would, you would put a nuclear warhead in a spacecraft and here's your asteroid. Your nuclear warhead would not um, blow it up, but it would explode and then the energy would push it. Um, that one is going to be a difficult one because all of the world governments have agreed that they won't put nuclear warheads or nuclear weapons uh, on the top of a rocket. Um, And so that'll be a lot of negotiating with a lot of countries um, with the idea that you could put a weapon on top of a, a, a launch vehicle. So those are the three options that are generally accepted. There are a lot of other options that, you know, people have been exploring that, you know, they they probably might work. They seem a little bit more complicated. Um, If we knew one was coming, why wouldn't we just use something as simple as the billiards ball, right? Like, you know that you can move something if you knock it and it's going to move. So why do we need complicated solutions? So those are the three. Most people want us to get us to these first two. And all those, the first two require us to um, know where they are uh, and know where they're going to be. So we're back to the discovery problem.
0: Yeah, I think it's maybe the for me that's sort of the counterintuitive thing about this whole problem is that the it's the detection is a much bigger problem than the deflection, right? When people think about oh, let's protect the Earth, they all think oh my God, how are we going to deflect it? But it turns out that might be the easier part of the equation if you can you know if you if you know where they are and you get enough warning. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, if there were if there were a really, so this is sort of a crazy idea, but like if there were a particularly large one, I mean, it seems like to me, like one of the, the hard part is you want to move something really enormous potentially. And of course, you know, we can only send so much mass off of the earth and on a mission to go to this thing. It seems like maybe in a, in a certain sense, well maybe the the easiest way to to deflect something large would be with something by pushing something almost as large that's near it kind of, you know, in its path or, you know, and that almost, that almost got me thinking, well, could you, if you calculate that back, could you actually engineer a complicated kind of domino style chain reaction of like, you know, that picture where a little domino knocks over a bigger one, which knocks over a bigger one. And then you end up with this enormous thing. Like you could almost imagine engineering that with asteroids and it wouldn't be too crazy given enough time in advance if we had this map, right?
1: Yes. if we had the map, I mean, it really all comes down to the question of where are they and where are they going? Yeah. Um, and, and given where humanity is right now with our um, capabilities, you know, we're going to gravitate towards what we know, as opposed to trying to orchestrate something that we haven't um, tested. And so I'm, I'm hopeful, um, because we have these technology demonstration missions happening, um, you know, hopeful that Ellis is will be even better than they anticipate in their modeling in finding the Earth asteroids. They haven't published new numbers, but every time you do more modeling, you have a better sense of, um, you know, what you're actually gonna be able to do, kind of given all of the constellation of um, things that impact your um, uh, uh, observations. So I feel like we're making um, good progress, but we really do need to accelerate the rate of asteroid discovery because even with the ones that are coming on, the numbers, the sheer numbers that we need to find, well, I showed them to you in the, in the graph. Yeah. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to find.
0: Dumb question. How do we know that we've only found 1% of them? If we haven't, f- if we haven't found the rest of them, how do we know how many there are?
1: Um, so it's, uh, I asked this question as well. When I first started, these numbers actually looked different than the ones I presented to you. So again, it's where we go back. We model um, if you search a certain part of the sky, you expect to see a certain number of asteroids in it. Um, every time you look into that, you know, area of sky and you still see the same number of asteroids in it, um, that gives you a baseline to assume, okay, um, we've checked here. It's stayed true. The number is true. And then you do it somewhere else. And And it's kind of like, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like uh, uh, it's the law of averages, right? So the more we're sure about what we think we're going to see, um, then it helps us um, do those calculations.
0: we <laughs> so do a really thorough, exhaustive search in a tiny section of the sky, and then we extrapolate from there to the whole yeah. sky, it sounds like. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah that makes sense. We did um, a
1: panel, so for asteroid day, which was June 30th, Um, which I should just say a little bit about. Um, We modeled it after Earth Day, which nobody owns Earth Day and no one owns Asteroid Day. The whole idea of Asteroid Day was to shine a spotlight on um, the scientist, teacher, your astronomy clubs, your government, whoever is doing asteroid or space-based technology um, that will help us get to or understand asteroids um, better or land-based technologies. Um, And so these are all self-organized events um, astronomy clubs will use some of the videos that we produce um, <clears throat> on Asteroid Day, where we bring in astronauts and real asteroid experts. There's not a lot of them. I just want to say <clears throat> it's a very small cohort of people who are are asteroid experts or working in this field, and so. We felt like the important thing to do was to develop a platform to really celebrate them and to inspire future scientists to want to be like them or to, you know, kind of join this global challenge or opportunity, whether or not you believe that there are resources in space that you want to be able to leverage to help us move out into space. Maybe some of them can be brought back to Earth, but most of us think there'll be resources that'll help us move out into space or to understand really the origins of how we got here. Those asteroids, which I have several here. I just wanted to share a couple with you. This is a, this is a, this is a meteorite. So it's a meteorite once it hits the ground. And um, I don't know if you can see it, but it's got a little bit of a glimmer or shimmer to it. So this is a, this was collected at a place called Ries Crater in Germany. And it's a, it's a walled city. And everyone thought it was an extinct volcano because, again, they didn't know back then what an asteroid impact site looks like. Um, but embedded in the, the rock of which there was a lot of from the asteroid that blew up, this is a carbonaceous one. So it's, it's, it's very loose. It's, it's, and it's light. It doesn't weigh a lot. Embedded in that were were, um, the diamond structures. So the whole city glitters just a little bit uh, because the bricks that made up the city have diamonds embedded in it. So those came from, from space. Um, And then this one is a, this is a, you know, it looks like green glass. I don't know if you can see it. It's got all these interesting striations in it. So this was actually made from sand, but in order to make it, you had to have an asteroid come down out of earth to the earth um, and then explode and put out its energy. And that energy grabbed up all the sand and created this these kinds of um, glassy structures that can only be done when you hit a certain heat range. And then, um, I like these, um, which I can never explain well, but they're so cool. This structure, let's see if you can see it. Can you see how it's got all these striations in it, and they go this way and that way. So that's from the inside of an asteroid, um, and you know it hit Earth and became a meteorite um, once it hits Earth. but it it's got these incredible structures that you know are not made by anything else other than um, when it um, came into Earth. And then finally, i love to share this and I might've shared this with you, Jason. Um, <clears throat> this is a, this is an asteroid. It's a Canyon Diablo asteroid. I'm meteorite. It weighs a whole bunch. It's super heavy. And so this is part of what made the hole in Meteor Crater, Arizona. So it's a Canyon Diablo and it's made out of iron and it's super heavy. And you can see when it was entering into earth that um, it started getting really hot, so it's coming down like this. It's burning, it's hot, and then at the end you can see you can see it's kind of got like a little bit of a wing, like a like you know one of those planes with a wing. And so it's getting hot and it's it's elongating as it's coming through our atmosphere, <clears throat> and so this is what made um, the big hole uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona. So they're very exciting, um, and they have lots of interesting things in them. And as we go out into space. Um, or as we learn more about how they operate in space, um, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves, <clears throat> how to protect the planet, and how we might move out into the solar system. So I think they're pretty exciting objects.
0: Yeah, wow. Those are super cool. Thanks for, thanks for showing this. The, uh, the iron one just reminds me that when we, uh, when we cover in the course the history of iron and steel, um, you know, one of the things we talk about is that before humans even knew how to smelt iron, they knew it from meteoric uh, sources and believe, in fact, it's, um, it's believed that uh, uh, Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun is buried with an iron dagger that seems to have been made out of meteoric iron based on examining its, its uh, nickel content. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, another question, uh, this one from Grant. Do we know the chemical makeup of these asteroids? And in particular, is there any interesting low hanging fruit for asteroid miners?
1: uh they do know um the makeup of asteroids obviously because we have meteors um here on earth that you know we can learn from um and most people agree that the most important thing that we will mine will be water um, because water can be fuel so asteroids can become should we be able to develop the technology in space to extract the water frozen water from an asteroid could then be used as fuel to Allow us to use them as stepping stones to move out into the solar system, um, or you know, obviously sustain our, our life. Um, as I mentioned, you know, this one you know came from space with diamonds, um, but uh, you know, some of them, uh, a, a small number of them, have um, a platinum and gold and you know different kinds of um, uh, metals, um, precious metals. It's pretty hard to mine on Earth. Imagine how hard it's going to be to mine on an asteroid. So um, uh, using in in situation, in situ, is more the kind of mining that we think will be uh, uh, reasonable within the next, you know, 50 years.
3: Yeah.
1: Although technology could really surprise us. I mean, we're going to learn an awful lot about you know, the technology to go to the moon, to be able to evaluate, you know, all of the different characteristics of the dust and the, you know, the dirt and the atmosphere and same thing when we go to Mars. So technology really could be our friend um, in terms of understanding how we would do um, more of this um, uh, resource utilization.
0: Are asteroids very different uh, in terms of their composition? Like, do you have one that's like, oh, this one has a lot of iron and this one doesn't have any iron and
1: it, yes, exactly. A lot of variation. So the, the metal ones are infrequent. Um, and the more um, uh, the, the, the term that really got me as I, cause my background is not um, as a scientist as a, as a technologist um, <clears throat> was that um, one of the scientists explained to me that, that um, asteroids, the majority of asteroids are simply um, a, a large uh, collection of uh, gravel and rock. Dust bunnies held together by gravity. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> <laughs> wrap my head around that one.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: So they, they have a whole range from super hard to like you could probably push your hand through it and it would fall apart. And, you know, the astronauts always talk about, you know, they're excited about, you know, the possibility of visiting um, uh, uh, an asteroid, but they really don't have any gravity. So you know you're going to have to figure out the technology to hook yourself um, onto the onto the asteroid to actually walk through it, um, or you know super weighted, but it would probably be in, in out of um, out of the carrying load of your spacecraft, the kind of weight that you would need to just stay on the low gravity uh, asteroid environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Well. Um another uh another student uh, in the class uh, Vital asks are there any meteorites that are believed to have originated outside the solar system?
1: I don't know the answer to that. I'm guessing probably. Um uh you know, I mean, I I think some people probably remember uh, Mora, which is our, you know, first um interstellar object that looked like a cigar. Um, that came zooming into our solar system and then zoomed right back out. Um, so, you know, we are just beginning to understand the meteorites that we have on land. We have two exciting um, uh, asteroid missions right now, actually OSIRIS-REx, um, which is gonna take a sample in August of uh, an asteroid called Bennu. And the Japanese Space Agency has done two missions, a Hayabusa-1 and Hayabusa-2. Hayabusa 2 has gone to an asteroid Rugu and shot a high-speed explosive down into it and then grabbed up the, um, uh, the, the regolith uh, or the gravel from that asteroid, and it's going to deliver its asteroid um, package um, in December. Um, we're going to drop it off in Australia, and then that spacecraft is going to go off and visit another asteroid. So we'll be learning a lot about asteroids, um, and the, the, the composition and makeup from those two missions. So back to the meteorite question, we don't know what we don't know because we don't have that big of a, a, a set of um, knowledge at this point, but it totally would not surprise me that we have meteorites on earth that came from outside our solar system.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, another question from uh, student Juan David about uh, if we think about colonizing the solar system, if we're living on other planets, do we have the same problem of, of asteroid deflection? Would we use the same technologies and processes? How is it relevant to a Mars colony? or?
1: Yeah. I mean, so if you look at the moon um, at, at night and you see all those holes in it, so the moon has no atmosphere. So all those holes... The Swiss cheese of the moon, those are all made by asteroids. And the same thing is true on Mars. You know, those are all asteroid impact sites. Um, and I suppose that when we're con- 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 uh, on Mars and the moon, um, we will uh, uh, figure out um, over time how to deflect an asteroid if we have a colony there. I think we'd probably um, prioritize how to protect our home planet first, and then once we understand how to do it for the largest population base, then we can turn our attention to how to protect um, the moon or Mars or anywhere else.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. Um, all right. We're getting low on time. Um, maybe Danica, we could just close with, um, I, I'd, I'd like to know how did you personally get so interested and uh, invest? I mean, it's obviously an interesting topic, but you got so invested in this that you, you know, wanted to start, and run this organization. Um, Maybe just tell us your your personal story.
1: Sure, so um, my background is uh, computer science. I've always believed in computers. I was going to college when the PCs first came out. Um, Got really excited about what a personal computer could do. Spent a lot of years working in the personal computer world. Um, And I'm a believer in technology. And so technology has really been my sort of core competency, um, computational systems to run businesses with all the new tools that are coming along. So whether it was the first applications on a PC, the first web-based tools and products and websites um, to backend infrastructure. Um, and when I left the organization that I'd been at for a decade, where as chief operating officer, I managed all the IT and HR and our boards and finance. I kind of asked the question of, you know, what's next? I mean, I like being on kind of the cutting edge of technology. And I went to see um, my friend, Rusty Schweikart, who's an Apollo 9 astronaut. And I said, I don't really know what I want to do. I was at this organization for 10 years. and, And he said, well, you know, I just handed over this organization to Ed. Why don't you go talk to Ed? And I said, Rusty. I don't know anything about asteroids. I don't know anything about aerospace. Why in the world would you think that I would be good at helping Ed um, and B612 become, you know, an actual, you know, staffed organization? And he said, well, because you're good at getting things done. And (laughs) And so for me, it was a little bit intimidating because when you talk about astronauts or astrophysicists, when you think about like the top of the geek pyramid, like astronauts and astrophysicists, they're like right at the very top of the geek pyramid. So super intimidating. But in the end, what it comes down to is if you really want to build an organization, if you really want to do something and you understand that you don't have to be an expert, that your contribution can be one that can help those experts get to where they want to go, I felt like, okay, I'll say yes to something I know nothing about. And the reason I said yes was, I mean, I loved Ed, um, but really what was happening and is currently happening is that, that we are learning so much about space right now. Um, the, the low earth orbit, the satellite business, the telecommunications business. This is just like the PC revolution. Nobody knows what the business models are gonna be. Nobody understands you know, how all these things are gonna work. Billions are gonna be made and billions are gonna be lost and we're gonna end up with some really great technology. And at the, at, the, at the core of who I am is that I am a techno-optimist and I believe technology is gonna do some terrible things to our society and we have to pay attention to it. But I believe that technology actually is gonna help us get out of a lot of problems and create solutions to things that we have created or are being presented to us. And the asteroid problem is just one of those.
0: Wow. Uh, that's a great answer and I think a fantastic lesson, especially for our, uh, our high school and college students in the audience and a great note to end on. So thank you so much, Danica, for joining us today. This was awesome. And um, uh, the, uh, uh, the recording will be up online soon. And um, uh, everyone else, thanks for coming and, and hope you enjoyed this. Uh, tune in uh, for our future events. So long.